A hundred years ago, two celebrity explorers engaged in one of the manliest competitions in human history, the race to the South Pole. The public waited anxiously to hear which of the two men would be the first to reach it. The men and their crews spent months hiking, skiing, climbing, and breaking through the ice. And they relied on what is today a child's drink, hot cocoa. Oh, my fingers are so freezing. The audio you're hearing is from an expedition that recreates those polar conditions. Ah, this hot cocoa is actually really good. In the midst of putting together this story about polar explorers, a nor'easter hit New York. We're talking sub-zero temperatures, 40-mile-an-hour winds, and the kind of chill that makes your eyes water. So naturally, I sent producer Joe out to do some field reporting. So my host doesn't want to come out and record this, but I'm going to get the, the wind. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. Good timing. But don't worry. He had a tent and hot cocoa. And he brought his partner, Sophie, for moral support. I'm using the microphone to hold up the tent. He's fine. And apparently getting into character as an Arctic explorer. I'm alone. Except for the four other people that have to pull my stuff. Oh, Jesus. I think I'll stop today and look at some penguin embryos. Anyway. This is the third and final episode in our hot beverage series. Hot cocoa is a delicious winter treat, but it was also at the center of a legendary battle between 1900 celebrities, Roald Amundsen and Robert Falcon Scott. These explorers will live and die with cocoa in their bellies. We're venturing into the cold with the help of real polar explorers and producer Joe. Our tent is getting full of snow though. That's okay. That's that's historically accurate. Godspeed, Joe. From Campsite Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. Today, we're joining the race to the South Pole. Specifically, we're following Captain Robert Falcon Scott whose crew relied on hot cocoa for calories as well as for comfort on their snowy trek. It's fuel. They even used it to flavor their meat stew. But we'll get to that later. First, it's time to meet Captain Scott. If you're used to seeing explorers on National Geographic, now's the time to revise your expectations. That's not what Scott looks like. He doesn't have the build of a top athlete. He looks like he'd be most at home sitting behind a desk. But apparently looks can be deceiving, because Scott loved nothing more than trekking up glaciers and making other people freeze with him. Everybody who ever travels with Scott hates him. That's the voice of Ed Larson, a professor at Pepperdine University who's also written a bunch of books on polar exploration and scientific history. Larson has visited Antarctica over a dozen times. If he had a punch card for visiting the South Pole, he'd be well on his way toward earning a free sandwich. And he's so familiar with Scott's expedition that he's even seen the supplies. And that's where I got a taste, as it were, figuratively, a taste of their food. Because it's still sitting there in cans and in the meat lockers because it's all in a deep freeze. It takes a very particular person to organize a voyage to the bottom of the earth in the early 1900s. Ed Larson describes Scott as an insanely competitive man with a chip on his shoulder from growing up middle class. And Larson says that's his big motivation for being a polar explorer. He wants to move in the highest circles of English society. 
Scott led his first expedition to Antarctica as a commander in the Royal Navy in 1901. One of his chief skills was lying to people. Their expedition is supposed to be about scientific research. But Scott turns the entire effort into a push to be the first team to reach the South Pole. And he shouldn't have been the leader once they got there. Once they got there, he should just be sitting there waiting at the boat. And the scientists take control. Along with Scott on that trip is the, now arguably more famous, Ernest Shackleton. He's one of Scott's lieutenants. They head south, and it's a disaster. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to sled with dogs. It's, it's a mess. Being an egotistical liar is as good in the 1900s as it is today. Even though Scott doesn't make it to the pole, he goes back to England, gets a book deal, gets famous, and marries a rich, beautiful woman. While Scott is enjoying his comforts, Shackleton makes another attempt at the pole. He does it without Scott, whom he hates. But Shackleton comes up short. And when Shackleton returns empty-handed, Scott's competitive streak activates. He's determined to be the first man to reach the South Pole. To do it, Scott needs outside help. He has to convince the kingmakers at the hot beverage companies to sponsor him like they sponsored Shackleton. Because you can't do groundbreaking polar expeditions without donated hot cocoa. One chocolate sponsor was Cadbury, which promised, quote, a drink as warm as mink. This is an ad from 1964, but the temperature of the chocolate is timeless. Hot chocolate. Cadbury's drinking chocolate. Back in the 1910s, the advertising was a little different. One print ad from Scott's expedition was a golden hour scene at the South Pole where the crew looks hopefully at the horizon. There's cases of Fry's hot chocolate in their sled, and it appears that they've planned accordingly for a long, cold trip. So he gets chocolate companies to sponsor the chocolate and Lipton Tea to sponsor the tea. And he gets people to donate and sponsor the dogs and the ponies and everything else. It's like one of these NASCAR drivers with stickers all over them. This is a massive, expensive operation. And Scott's ship, the Terra Nova, lands in Antarctica at the very end of 1910. They're setting up camp, doing nearby coastal exploring, when they come across something odd another ship. Scott and his crew were supposed to be the only humans in Antarctica. But it turns out Scott isn't the only guy gunning for the pole. As Ed Larson explains, the leader of the rival expedition is a Norwegian named Roald Amundsen. Amundsen set out to sea with a crew he had convinced to head to the North Pole so that he could be the first man there. But by the time Amundsen got going, he knew that he was probably going to lose the race to the North Pole to a rival expedition, headed by American Robert Peary. Amundsen thought he might be able to beat Scott to the South Pole. So once he was at sea, Amundsen pulled a bait-and-switch on his crew and pointed the boat south. And that's how Scott found himself in a race. But before the race can begin, both expeditions have to wait out the Antarctic winter. The only way you're going to make to the pole is you go down the, the summer before, you set up camp, and then you head out at the beginning of spring. Because the only way you're going to make it all the way there and back is you have to have the whole season. Amundsen spends his winter relaxing, as best as Antarctic conditions can allow. So Scott makes a different decision. 
he's actually going to do all the science he didn't bother doing on his last trip with Shackleton. It's going to be the focus of the expedition. That way, if he loses the race to the pole come spring, at least he can say that his trip served a higher purpose. He wasn't just some unscientific Norwegian hungry to break a record. Scott spends the winter exhausting his crew by sending them out on a bunch of esoteric scientific missions. Okay. All right. Recording diary entries. Starting August 2nd. This is actually before... Producer Joe finally got his tent up. He's reading from Scott's journal, describing the rations expended on these awful expeditions. In this way, we have arrived at a simple and suitable ration for the inland plateau. The only change suggested is the addition of cocoa for the evening meal. The party contented themselves with hot water. Preparing the hot chocolate was an important part of their routine. Without hot chocolate, they'd die. The beverage provided the necessary calories, sugar, and fat to endure the deadly cold. Two members of the crew are Bertie Bauer and Edward Wilson. Larson describes the return from one of the winter expeditions, dubbed by them, quote, the worst expedition in the world. Bertie Bauer and, and Wilson come back exhausted. You should see picture, there are wonderful pictures of them drinking hot cocoa after they come back from this worst expedition in the world. In one picture, four men are sitting around a communal pot with mugs in their hands taking a break from hauling their supplies across the frozen landscape. I think they're in a tent. One guy is smiling. I don't know. They all look pretty cold. Finally, in the fall of 1911, Scott and Amundsen are ready to set off for the South Pole. It's like two runners waiting for a starting gun. Except the runners can't see each other because they're starting from very different points. The runners also have very different styles. Scott has spent eight years methodically building a plan that relies on fuel depots and checkpoints. Instead of dogs, he's going to use ponies, tractors, and manpower to move his sleds across the continent, unlike his rival, Amundsen. Larson explains why. Scott, you know, he was British. They love dogs. You can't eat a dog. You can't feed a dog to other dogs. That's just not the way people do it. Amundsen, Norwegian, that was fine. But the ponies died and the tractors broke, so the men pulled the sleds. So Scott knew his expedition would be really slow. It was designed without a race in mind. In contrast, Amundsen designed his whole... He knew Scott was down there. He knew he had to get there faster. So his expedition was designed for speed, and it was incredibly fast. So Scott knew his only hope was that Amundsen would fail or that he couldn't find a route up. Things are about to get really miserable for Scott and his crew. Whiteout conditions, frostbite, dead horses, temperatures below negative 40 degrees. It may have been even more difficult than Joe's own struggle with his tent in Brooklyn. Next. Monday, December 25th, Christmas. I am so replete that I can scarcely write. I must write word of our supper last night. We had four courses, arrowroot, Cocoa and biscuit hoosh. Sweetened. What is hoosh? Why, it's the favorite meal of the polar explorer, of course. It's basically a meat stew that often has hot cocoa in it. Unfortunately, Joe wasn't able to recreate hoosh faithfully because he's a practicing vegetarian. Which brings us to the sponsor of this episode. Captain Scott's Stew Chocolate. A British tradition since 1903. 
Don't put just any chocolate in your meat stew. Captain Scott's stew chocolate is specially blended to bring out the flavors of the finest Arctic meats. Horse, dog, emperor penguin, that guy from your expedition who froze to death last night. However you choose to make your hoosh, Captain Scott's is here to make your evening meal into a living nightmare. Find it wherever you get your polar supplies. Back to the aftermath of Scott's Christmas feast. We have slept splendidly and feel thoroughly warm, such is the effect of a full feeding. Yeah, why did we take that warm feeling wouldn't last long. Everything seemed to go wrong for Scott, from losing their trail to miscounting supplies. Despite this, Scott still has some hope that the Norwegians will have failed. But soon, it's clear that they're well 16. ahead in the race. Tuesday, January 16th, 1912. The worst has happened, or nearly the worst. You can hear the Norwegians laughing in the distance. About the second hour of the march, Bowers' sharp eyes detected what he thought was a kern. Half an hour later, he detected a black speck ahead. Soon we knew that this could not be a natural snow feature. We marched on, found it was a black flag tied to a sledge bearer. Near the remains of a camp, <gasps> sledge tracks and ski tracks going and coming from the clear trace of dogs, paws, many dogs. This told the whole story. The Norwegians had forestalled us and our first of the pole. It is a terrible disappointment, and I feel sorry for my local companions. Do you understand what happened, Bertie? Joe decided that his partner Sophie should play Bertie Bauer from the expedition. Someone died. No. Well, maybe. You were beat by the Norwegians. The damn Norwegians! Scott struggled through blizzard and fatigue, sometimes hiking through the snow without skis. He and his crew held out hope that Amundsen had lost his way. But it was not to be. Can I have some more hot cocoa? Yeah. The sugar will make you feel better about your loss. It's funny you say that, because the next day, January 17th, we reached the pole, but under different circumstances than those we expected. It's something to have got here, and the wind may be our friend tomorrow. We have a fat polar hoosh in spite of our chagrin, oh and my. feel comfortable inside. We added a stick of chocolate and a queer taste of cigarette. Now for the run home and a desperate struggle. I wonder if we can do it. What do you think? I sure hope so, Joe. We can't go on without you. I mean, we could, but we'd rather not. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. January 27th, 1912. It looked like a rough sea. Let's rejoin Joe back in his recreation of Scott's perilous expedition. Our sleeping bags are slowly but surely getting wetter, and I'm afraid it will take a lot of weather to put them right. Scott's men reached the pole, which is cool. But Amundsen got there five weeks earlier and had already mapped the area. He also left the Brits some of his extra supplies. The British crew had nothing new to discover, and needed to get back to base camp ASAP before the Antarctic winter began. January 28th, three articles were dropped on our outward march. Oats pipe, 
devours her mitts. How did you lose your mitts? I don't know, but that sounds like frostbite to me. And Evans lost his boots. As they head back, conditions continue to worsen. The biscuit box is short. The men are slowing down, and the depots they made are leaking lighter fuel. Okay, February 24th, 1912. Lunch. Beautiful day. Too beautiful. Saw a depot and reached it in the middle of the forenoon. Found store and order except oil shortage. I don't know what to think, but the rapid closing of the season is ominous. It is a race between the season and hard conditions. Remember, without oil, you can't melt ice. So you have no water. And with no water, you die. Also, you can't make tea and hot cocoa. Just as an aside, you might be thinking, well, why not just eat the snow? And turns out there's a simple answer. The reason you don't do that is because the calories you'll lose melting it in your mouth are more valuable than the water you'll get. These dire entries get pretty grim as the days go on. Scott mixes optimism with the fact that they seem to have no food, no support, and no idea where they're going. Monday, March 5th, 1912. Lunch. Regret to say, going from bad to worse. The others, all of them, are unendingly cheerful when, the, when in an attempt. We mean to see the game through with a proper spirit, but it's tough work to be pulling harder than we ever pulled in our lives for long hours to feel that progress is so slow. One can only say, God help us, and plot on our weary way, cold and very miserable, though outwardly cheery. I think when they left the pole, they still thought they'd make it. Now it's becoming irrational, but when you're cold, when you're hungry, you lose your rational ability. Scott's crew died one by one, and he appears to have died at the very end of March 1912. Other support members at base camp found Scott's body later, and apparently got his diary by prying it out of his frozen fingers. The British team was just miles from a supply depot that could have saved their lives. But they were also really struggling. It's one of those but-for things. They would have made it but-for the loss of fuel, probably. They would have made it but for carrying the extra weight. They would have made it but for the fact that they stopped and did scientific research. You can read it in the diaries. They were so disheartened when they found out that Amundsen really had beat them. They weren't first. This is part of the nature of risky, heroic polar expeditions. Mistakes and bad luck in Antarctica are a matter of life and death. Some of the factors were Scott's fault, but some weren't. It was definitely possible to do this expedition without anyone dying, because the Norwegians had a really good trip. I mean, none of them died. But in this exact moment, in the midst of British imperialism and celebrity explorers, Robert Scott became a martyr. The public could read every diary entry to the bitter end. In death, Scott was glamorized, maybe more beloved by the upper and lower classes than he was in life. Scott's diary was widely read by British soldiers during World War I and World War II. In 1948, there was a Technicolor blockbuster about the adventurer called Scott of the Antarctic. Here's John Mills, the actor who played Scott. It means a lot to you, doesn't it, getting there first? Of course it does, Bill. You know damn well it does. But the Antarctic's a big enough thing to be up against without this fellow butting in as well. As the British Empire began to fall apart, popular perceptions of Scott changed. By the 70s, even Monty Python was poking fun at Scott's legacy. Here's a skit they made called Scott of the Antarctic. The premise is that they're shooting Scott of the Antarctic, but they've taken some creative liberties. This afternoon, we're going to shoot the scene where Scott gets off the boat, onto the ice floe, and he sees the lion, and he fights it, and he kills it, and the blood goes in slow motion. 
there aren't any lions in the Antarctic. What? And of course, the public's interests change. In the 60s and 70s, space exploration became the new frontier. And today, you can visit Antarctica as a tourist. A lot has changed, but some things remain the same. There's something about a warm drink that makes you feel safe. Hot beverages reminded Scott and his crew of home. It's a small gesture of normalcy in an otherwise alien landscape. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twain. Michael Collins was the Apollo 11 astronaut who stayed behind in the shuttle. While his crewmates were making history on the surface of the moon, Collins's orbit took him to its far side. In that moment, he became the person who'd traveled farther than anyone else in human history. But home was with him there. I was uh, always asked, wasn't I uh, the loneliest person in the whole lonely history of the whole lonely solar system when I was by myself in that lonely orbit? And the answer was no, I felt fine. I had hot coffee, I had music if I wanted it. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually. Like, think about travel mugs. We use them because we need our hot bevs with us wherever we're going. To explore is to take a bit of home with you wherever you are. At the South Pole, that was hot cocoa. In space, it was coffee. But it doesn't really matter what the beverage is, as long as it's hot, I think. Next week, we're kicking off a full month of wormholes. We've got stories about urban legends, grave diggers, charming murderers, and more. See you then. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Kenyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne, who also wrote this episode. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie, and we're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Iceman Kenyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campsite Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. Special thanks to Dr. Ed Larson for his polar expertise, and to Sophie Gamer for her tent expertise. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsitemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsePod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Bijan Cakes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>